not my problem. That's what Hezekiah said in the last chapter. If you remember, in the last few chapters, we have seen how God delivered Hezekiah with power and with signs from his mortal illness. He saved him from dying, and he even gifted Hezekiah with 15 extra years of life. Not only that, God also saved Jerusalem from the destructive purposes and powers of Assyria. It did not cost Jerusalem a single arrow. God came with this might and with this power. And in both cases, both saving Hezekiah's life from mortal illness and saving Jerusalem from utter destruction, God did that miraculously, graciously, and powerfully. And yet, Hezekiah trusted his nation's future to Babylon, not to God. And it just makes no sense. Hezekiah saw with his own eyes that it was God who saved his life, that it was God who saved his city and his nation. And so it should have been God who received Hezekiah's trust, loyalty, thanks, and dependence. But rather than giving glory to God, Hezekiah once again turned to man, and he turned to Babylon. And when Hezekiah learned that because of his faithlessness, because of his sins, that both his nation will suffer great damage, and that his own lineage, his own sons, some of them will become eunuchs and serve the harem of Babylon, which potentially put at risk the messianic line. Hezekiah still could not be bothered. And he said, well, all this is good because none of these disasters will happen while I am alive. All these things will happen when I am dead. What do I care? Not my problem. Could you put yourselves in the position of the regular folks in Jerusalem? who just heard what Hezekiah did. How would you feel when you heard that your king does not care at all what will happen to you? Could you put yourselves in the shoes of Hezekiah's children when you just found that your own father doesn't care that you will be taken as captives You'll be castrated without a family, made slaves, and your father doesn't care. How would you feel? I think it's natural to conclude that you, if you were that person, you would feel profoundly broken, you would feel profoundly betrayed, and you would feel profoundly helpless. And that is why we have chapter 40. Because this is where God answers 
Hezekiah's sins. And this is where God comforts the brokenhearted people. And so that's the first thing we see. God comforts the brokenhearted. You see, Hezekiah, he was supposed to shepherd God's people. He was supposed to ensure their well-being, look out for them. But he was utterly inadequate. And that is why beginning with chapter 40, we begin to see something. Now we see that God is no longer able and he is no longer willing to let other people shepherd his own flock. And so it is with that beginning with chapter 40, we begin to see it clearly that God himself will become the shepherd of his people. Now, we haven't read this verse because we will come to it in the next passage. But if we skip ahead a few verses, this is what we read in verse 11 of this chapter. He, God, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so the entire point of chapter 40 is that God is deeply dissatisfied with all the men who have been appointed to be shepherds over his people. And at last, God is saying, I can no longer let these people shepherd my precious flock. I myself will come, and I myself will become their shepherd. You see, God's heart is not cold or hard like Hezekiah's heart. God's heart is tender, and his heart is wide open to embrace the suffering people. And it is out of that tender heart that God speaks in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You see, this is God's answer to Hezekiah's sins, and this is God's answer to the people who, who were profoundly betrayed, who were profoundly let down, who were profoundly hurt. And God says to them, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And if you look at the statement, every part of the statement is tailor-made to bring hope to a people who had lost hope. He says, comfort. Even though Hezekiah's sins will have devastating consequences, God says, comfort, because sin will not have the last word, and because Hezekiah's failings, foolishness, and sins cannot hinder God's good purposes for his people. That is why God says, comfort. And he says, he calls them my people. Even though Hezekiah and really the entire nation so often, so quickly, so repeatedly turned their backs on God and they went running after other gods, they were so ready to say to Lord, the Lord, the Jehovah, you are not my God, they are my God. Yet God says to them, you are my people. You are my people. Even their sins cannot separate God's love and commitment from them. And he says, your God, says your God. 
God is so committed to his people who did not deserve it, who did not even want him. But comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And here we see something really important. Some people who claim to speak for God speak very harshly. They speak harshly about God, and they speak very harshly to people. Now, there is an appropriate time and place for directness. And I think it is possible when people speak directly, sometimes it is mistaken as being spoken harshly. So I think it is important for us to recognize that there is an appropriate time and place for, to speak directly, not to mince words, especially when people trifle with God. And if we look at the most loving person that has ever lived, and I'm talking about Jesus, we see time and time again how Jesus at times could speak forcefully. But having said that, there is a problem when people who claim to speak for God can only speak harshly. And see what God is like here. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at this city, at this time, was not a city that was a beacon of godliness, truth, or commitment to God. This was a city that was ruled by ungodly kings, a city filled with idolatrous people, and God certainly knows their sins. And yet when he sends Isaiah, when he sent his prophets, what he says to them is, speak tenderly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And that tells us something really important, doesn't it? God knows their sins. But God also sees that they are more than just sinners because they are sinners, but they are also sufferers. And he sees their suffering. And his heart being so tender, he is moved by their suffering. And he says, speak tenderly. To Jerusalem. And so that is the, the, the first thing we see. God comforts the brokenhearted people. God comforts the brokenhearted people. Secondly, God rescues the brokenhearted people. And so if the point, entire point of chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, is where God finally says, None of these people who have been appointed to shepherd my people are good enough. I will come and be their shepherd myself. I myself will become their good shepherd. The question to ask is, how does God shepherd his people? How does God come and meet the needs of his people? How does God look out for his people? And the way he does that is he rescues them from what threatens their lives and he makes atonement for their sins. 
That's how God shepherds his people. And he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, if you uh, are not careful, and if we are not reading this passage with great care, that phrase, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, that phrase may come across as very harsh because it almost sounds like that punishment for our sin is greater than our sins. It almost sounds as though God is repaying us twice Twice the punishment for the sins that we have committed. That's what it could sound like if we are not careful when we read this passage. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. But that's not what is being said at all because that phrase is actually helping us to understand that the previous phrase where it says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, her iniquity is pardoned. And so the point of that passage is not that God is paying us double, making us suffer double the amount of our sins. That's not at all. Rather, the point is that the atonement that God provides is the double the size of our sins. That is the point. Or let me put it this way. All of us, even the most perceptive of us, can only see our sins in part. None of us uh, fully realize the true extent of our sins, and none of us truly understand the full damage that our sin has done to God's glory and to our spiritual destiny. Even the best of us, even the most perceptive of us, can only see our sins in part. And that is why if it is left up to us to deal with our sins, we can at best scratch the surface of our true spiritual problem. But when Isaiah says here, the Lord speaks through Isaiah and he says, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's and double for all her sins. That means that God has provided an atonement that, that is more than sufficient to deal with all of our sinfulness. That even though we cannot ever see the full extent of our own sins, God knows exactly how twisted, how broken, and how fallen we are, and He has provided for his fallen people, sufficient, complete, and perfect atonement that is more than enough to cover all our sins. And that's the meaning, that's the significance of we, uh, Jerusalem has received from the Lord's and double for all her sins. And what's really interesting, too, is that the Old Testament has several different, langu- different words to describe our fallenness. Uh, several different words that we usually translate as sin. A good place to see that is Psalm 51, the psalm that David wrote after he was caught in his adultery with Bathsheba. And this is what Psalm 51 verse 1 says. David prays, blot out my transgression. 
So transgression is one word in the Old Testament that describes our fallenness and is describing our fallen condition in terms of having done or having transgressed, having gone over the boundaries that God has set for us. So when David says, blot out my transgressions, he is saying, I have gone past transgress or trespass into a place where you have told me not to. Okay? And then in uh, Psalm 51.2, David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That word iniquity is also sometimes uh, translated as sin, but that word iniquity is really pointing to the fact that David, his inner being, his heart, there's something twisted and warped about it. And it is from the twisted and warped heart that acts of sin follow, and that's what David means in Psalm 51 too, when he says, cleanse me from my sin. Okay. So these are just three different ways of describing our fallenness. And when we come to Isaiah chapter 42, when God says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, her iniquity is pardoned, it's that word iniquity that David uses in Psalm 51, the word that is describing the fallenness of sinners in terms of there being something twisted and warped in their heart. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that when God provides double for her sins, when God provides that all-sufficient, perfect atonement, God is not merely dealing with the sinful acts that we do. But God is dealing with the root problem of our warped and twisted essence. So God's atonement reaches deep into our very inner being, to the core of our essence, and there eradicates the deep-seated guilt stain that we do not even notice or even acknowledge. That's God's atonement, to reach deep into the, the twisted inner core of our being and to make us whole from deep within. And so what we need to recognize is that your sin problem, my sin problem, is deeper than we can possibly imagine. It's not just the sinful things that we do that makes us sinners. It's the fact that there is something deeply wrong about our heart. It's twisted. It's sick. And it's from that heart that our sinful acts follow. But God, he is able to deal with it perfectly. And so this is the two errors that we need to avoid. On the one hand, it is a grave mistake to think lightly of sin. Because when you make light of sin, you, you have to contend with a God who is holy and just, and you have no way of contending with him. So making light of sin is a grave mistake. But 
it is no less a mistake to make light of God's atonement. And we do sometimes. Do you sometimes think that sooner or later, God is going to deal with you as your sins deserve? Are you afraid in the depths of your heart that, that not everything is forgiven? Not everything has been pardoned. And so do you live your life, perhaps consciously or unconsciously, afraid that God is going to judge you? You know what you are doing? You know what we are doing at that time? We are making light of God's atonement. We are not believing and we are forgetting the fact that he has provided double for our sins, that he who sees the exact extent that the nature of our sin problem has reached deep down into our heart and to cleanse us from the core at the center of our being. And so if you ever carry around in your heart this, this sense of dread that God is really not happy with you, that God's love is conditional towards you, that God is really just doing his best to, to hold at bay his wrath that's just bubbling under the surface, that if you just make one more mistake, he might just explode against you, that one day he's going to come and get you, make you pay, or otherwise you just feel that God is just not happy with you. What you are doing is you're making light of the atonement. And you are, you are forgetting and you are not believing that God, he whose heart is tender, he who is gracious, has given you a perfect and all-sufficient atonement so that you are pardoned, you are forgiven, and you are free. And that's the second thing we need to see, that God rescues the brokenhearted, and that's what he does. That's what he does to shepherd his broken people. He has provided for them and for you a perfect double atonement. Thirdly and lastly, God carries the brokenhearted people. This passage, Isaiah 40, began with a command in verse 1. The command was, God speaking through Isaiah. Uh, we can't tell at this point who that command is being addressed to, but the command in verse 1 is, comfort, comfort my people. And the command is answered for the first time, and throughout chapter 40, we will see how that command is answered over and over. But in verse 3, we have the first answer. A voice cries. In the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. If you've ever done a wilderness hiking, 
the roads are not smooth, the roads are not straight, and the roads are not level. It takes enormous amount of work to carve out a path through the wilderness. But here is a, is a picture that Isaiah is drawing for us in that there is a smooth path before God that every valley has been filled. Every hill has been raised down and made flat. Every twisting and turns of the road have been made straight in order to put a smooth and easy path for God in order to comfort his people. And so, when it says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, every valley shall be lifted up. Every valley, every crack will be filled. Every mountain and hill be made low. Uneven ground shall become level. Rough places are plain. This is pointing or this is making a statement that there is a smooth path before God and that the arrival of God's comfort is certain. That nothing is going to hinder God's comfort from coming to his people. And that when that comfort comes from God, we continue to read, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. God's glory will come. In fact, when God's comfort comes, we will see the glory of the Lord. Where is Isaiah getting at? Where is he going with this? Well, we see the answer in the New Testament because these words appear in the New Testament both in, in all three uh, Gospels, Matthew chapter 3, Mark 1, Luke chapter 3, these words appear when John the Baptist announces the coming of Jesus Christ. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Because God's comfort when it comes, when the coming of God's comfort shows us the glory of God, we see that in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, he is the glory of God. He is God's comfort. He is God's tender heart for sinners and sufferers. And Jesus is the all-sufficient atonement for our sin. Now, to be certain, the path before Jesus was anything but smooth. His ministry was beset with many difficulties, many obstacles. And Jesus suffered and died a painful death. But there was a certainty about his coming because the mouth, Isaiah says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There was nothing that was going to stop God from himself becoming our shepherd. There was nothing that was going to stop God from becoming the tender shepherd who carries the flock 
in his arms. And though Jesus' life was beset with difficulties and pain and suffering, because God purposed to do so, because he promised to do so, there was nothing that was going to stop Jesus from coming in order to be our atonement, our comfort, and God's glory. And you see, God's word, once it is spoken, it has an unstoppable force. And just as he said, God's glory came to us in Jesus Christ. And so, even today, you and I can turn to Jesus and find God's comfort. You know, when we read Isaiah chapters 38 and 39, it's hard to imagine how, how the situations can get any worse. Just to be delivered from mortal danger, and then against all reason and expectation, instead of being committed to God with a full-hearted devotion, then to turn against God. To have a king that you depended on, that you trusted, only to see that he has turned his back on you in your hour of need. To see your own father with callous hearts saying, what do I care what happens to my children? When you read the situation leading up to chapter 40, it's hard to imagine how any, any situation can be worse to be caught up in the mess that other people have made where you are hopeless and helpless, to see no way out of it. And I think our lives are often like that too. We often feel ourselves helpless, broken. We are caught up in the mess that other people have made. And to be honest, and if we are being honest, we realize, don't we, that some of the mess in our lives is our own making too. But God is glorified when we put our trust in him. He is so tender-hearted that when we turn to him for help, he never refuses us. And that is why I wish we had the time to read the entire chapter this morning, but we will save that for later. But look at verse 11 once again. He, God, will tend this flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's the promise. And that's how God receives glory to himself. Jesus cares for your burdened souls. Maybe you too are broken this morning. Maybe you too are in a place of darkness, weary, discouraged, just simply exhausted. This is God's promise to you. He promises to carry you in his arms. He promises to be tender with you when you are suffering. 
and he promises to lead you. Will you commit your cares to Jesus? And that's how you give him glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for for yourself becoming our good shepherd in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are such a God who is full of tenderness, compassion, and care for us, so that when we are broken, when we are needy, when we are weak, when we are exhausted, we can turn to you and know that you will be tender and gentle and compassionate. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage every saint in this room. May they remember that, that you have made an atonement for their sins, complete, perfect, and all-sufficient, and that they have nothing to fear from you, but every expectation that you will be gracious to them, that you will be kind to them, and that you will love them all throughout their lives. So we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.